Welcome to the Border the Most podcast. My name is Trey Jacobs, and today I am joined by uh, a powerhouse, actually. This is Brady Barker of Black Cedar Investments. Brady, man, how you doing? Doing great. How about you, Trey? Happy to be here. Yeah, man, I'm glad you uh, you fit me into the schedule. Um, I think there's a lot of value that you can you can add to the listeners. But before we jump into that, man, tell me a little bit about you, your story, and what led you to real estate. Yeah, no, I I'm glad you asked. Um, so I got started in real estate a few years ago. I I always knew I wanted to. I did little entrepreneurial things as as a teenager, and I just I knew I wanted to do something with real estate. I didn't really know what. And so I started doing property management while I was in college. I really enjoyed that. And for anyone who's done property management, you know, there's the good, the bad, and the ugly involved there. So I was very grateful to understand investments from that point of view. And I soon found that for me personally, I wanted something a little bit different to accomplish some of the the goals and, and aspirations I had in life. And so I started looking for something different and actually came across multifamily syndications. So I started working for a firm, uh, Multifamily Capital Partners, you know, Ryan Woolley, they gave me an amazing opportunity to work for them there. I really enjoyed it, was able to help out with several acquisitions and a disposition there, doing due diligence, doing acquisitions, and, you know, eventually transitioned to more of a partnership uh, where I created Black Cedar Investments with a couple different uh, partners. And now that's where a lot of my focus is. Uh, throughout this time, I've also done some real estate coaching as well. It's something I'm passionate about is helping others to you know, improve their situation, to learn how to invest in real estate. So that's something I'm currently doing and long-term plan to uh, be involved with as well. Nice, man. So what type of entrepreneurial gigs did a, a young Brady Barker em, embark on? Yeah, it's a good question. Well, I grew up in a small town, so it was all like blue collar type stuff. Uh, you know, I was actively involved in sports and all that kind of stuff is either sports or drugs, right? In small towns. So um, thankfully, I chose the former. And <laughs> thankfully, you know, right? thankfully that, was right? a, that was a close one, bro. <laughs> had to be careful there, right? And so, um, you know, amidst that, I, I tried out a couple different jobs, you know, did lifeguarding and stuff like that. And I was like, man, I realized no that, Yeah, yeah. I was a lifeguard too. Oh, I didn't know that. That's funny. Yeah. <laughs> Small world. I probably can't swim worth my life right now. So uh, yeah. think of the past, <laughs> right? But um, I did that, you know, making minimum wage, you know, 725 or whatever it was at the time. And I just found, I was like, hey, if I go mow a lawn, uh, which was something I'd done off and on since I was like 10 years old, going and mowing lawns for people. I, like, I could make 30 bucks in an hour. And so I was like, holy crap. You know, yeah, it's dirty, you're stinky, whatever happens. But that was a lot more lucrative. So I, yeah. that's really where the big focus was. I did a lot of lawn care, did a lot of like odd jobs for people, things like that um, throughout my time as a teenager. And, you know, just really fell in love with the idea of, being in control of, of income and destiny, um, and destiny in the sense of like, uh, you know, just, just what I was doing with my day to day, even if I was working more, I found that I really enjoyed it. Yeah. When I was, uh, growing up, probably preteen years, we I grew up in apartment complexes and me and a group of kids would go door to door all throughout the apartment complex and be like, Hey, you got some trash that you need us to take out? Yeah, you, you, we didn't have a price. You you pay us whatever you want, and they would always way overpay. It was it was a nice little hustle back in the day. Yeah, man, <laughs> gotta gotta hustle as a kid. It teaches a lot of good lessons. Oh yeah, bro. So w when you were at MFCP, what role were you playing over there? Yeah, so I was their due diligence specialist. Uh, I mm. found out later it was a made up role, but I loved it. Made up? Really? That's not like a <laughs> that's not like a real thing. Well, it it definitely is for for some companies. But typically what I was doing is I was kind of acting as a liaison between an acquisitions manager and an asset manager. So I pretty much just took responsibilities off of both of them and helped out how I could. So an acquisitions manager and, and what was the second one? And an asset manager. 
Okay. So how were you working with the acquisitions manager? Yeah. So, so we had someone who would, you know, source the property, do broke relationships, you know, typical kind of stuff like that. And, you know, do some of the initial underwriting and w- about the time of getting the uh, contract accepted, you know, that's where I would come in and really dive into what was going on at the property, really take, you know, their underwriting, their assumptions and expand upon it. And I would work in conjunction with an asset manager who was going to be more involved post-close and I would help them to see, you know, what the projections were looking like from the acquisitions manager from having built upon that, you know, what the state of the property was like. And so uh, I guess, sorry, I was getting into the asset manager piece, but really the acquisitions, I was taking off, um, offloading a lot of responsibilities once we had the contract signed. Okay. So I want to, I want to focus in on the relationship with the acquisitions manager, right? Like the first half of this, this equation. So they do the initial underwriting, they get the LOI sent out and then you get to the PSA phase and that's where you're coming in, right? Correct. So are you re underwriting the property? Like you're, you're kind of checking their work like on the, um, on the underwriting, right? Yeah, I'd say it's like a, a form of checking, checking and balancing, right? Really, that's all due diligence is, is you're, you're verifying everything that you've done with your assumptions. So I, I wouldn't necessarily go in and re-underwrite it if I didn't need to. I would mm-hmm. mainly focus on what are the things that we need to shore this up and make sure that these projections stand. And, you know, a lot of good acquisitions managers will do a lot of that up front. My job is to dig and nitpick and, and find whatever I could. Um, you know, past that. Okay. So let's say we have property X, right? And you guys just went into PSA phase. Do you have like a list of things that you're touching on um, once that property is passed into your queue? Yeah, for sure. So, um, I mean, really there's probably, you know, 50 to a hundred different nitpicky points. Uh, you could, mm-hmm. you could look at on a checklist that we have, but really the high level points are, you know, we're of course, uh, evaluating everything on the financials and all that that entails. So, you know, looking at different bills, uh, what, you know, making sure that the statements line up with what was actually happening in the financials, making sure that the, Hold on real quick. the statements, is that like the owner's bank statements? Correct. Yep. So okay. we would, we would request that from the owner to make sure that we could reconcile it with what they put into, you know, a T12 uh, or like an income statement um, to ensure that they actually lined up. Same with their rent rolls and also same with looking at things like contract services. You, you got to make sure that the contract actually lines up with what's happening in reality. Uh, not that people are by nature dishonest, but, you know, there's just there can always be mistakes that happen. And so right. we would go in and we would verify all those things financially. You know, we would go in, do lease audits, whether it would be ourselves or property management. I'm not going to take credit for doing all this myself. It's a lot of work. We'd work with great property management companies and ensure that we would get this done. Um, So a lot involved there. And then we would double check, you know, some legal items with our attorneys, making sure that, you know, title checked out, making sure if there were, you know, any easements on the property, um, you know, any liens on the property, all that fun legal stuff, those fancy words that we hope just work out. Okay. (laughs) We would double check those (laughs) things. And then, you know, we go into the fun part that I think a lot of people like to talk about, which is the physical aspect of it. Go actually inspect the property and um, really dive into what was going on on the ground. And that was one part that I found extremely enjoyable. I think everyone does. I at least hope everyone does. And so I created, you know, more of a of its own list to where I was saying, hey, every time I go to a property, what are the biggest things I'm looking at? Really, you know, aside from everything, you're looking at things like (laughs) your your roofs, your, you know, plumbing system. You're looking at electrical HVAC. Those are all going to be high ticket um, items that you need to make sure are running properly. Then once you you know whether those are good or whether they need to be replaced. Then we can look at also all the value adds, you know, unit upgrades, all the fun stuff that we want to, you know, really do to improve the property. 
So just taking a step back here, back to the financial due diligence, it sounds yeah, like yeah. you guys are rebuilding or recreating the financial statement to make sure that it aligns to what you received in the initial underwriting. Is that right? In a sense, yeah. I, I do actually know um, some groups who, who did that. They had a whole process they went through. I'll, I'll be honest for myself, I wasn't that, I guess particular about it i was just hey double checking that everything aligned there whether it was myself or um i you know once i kind of got into it i would really outsource that because it is time consuming and so we'd be able to make sure you know working with property management or other partners that that was getting done um whether it be in an official t12 or not we just have to make sure that those things actually did align gotcha gotcha okay so then um, what about taxes? How did you guys look at the taxes? Oh uh, yeah, that's a good question there. So, uh, one of my favorite things to do even before getting under contract is to go and stock everything I can on the, uh, tax assessor's website, right? Seeing all the information they have, different counties vary in how useful that information is, but typically we could find the, um, you know, past several years of, of tax bills on there. Once again, we're trying to um, double check that that actually aligns with what was going on with the seller. You know, in some cases we'd look at doing um, an appeal for the taxes where we're going to try to lessen the amount when we purchase it. And usually the acquisitions manager would have done beforehand their research to make sure what the tax rates were like in the area. They would have double checked, you know, what, what the reassessment looks like as well. Will it be reassessed upon purchase? Will it be reassessed every few years? Um, pretty much we look at what's the, are, are the tax, are the taxes accurate and what can we expect going forward for those taxes? Right. How would, like, I always struggle with this part, right? Like finding out when the taxes are reassessed or how the taxes are reassessed. Like what's the best resource for that? Yeah, that's, that's one of the fun parts is some of these things, they're, they're kind of decentralized, right? It's not right. one place that you can go across the nation. Um, really the tax assessor's office is really the best place to start. And this is one of those things where, you know, if you've ever heard people say, Hey, be careful when you call the tax assessor, this is definitely the time because you want to keep it general, but you say, Hey, for your County, when do you reassess the taxes on properties? Hypothetically speaking, right? Cause they're going to start asking right. a bunch of questions. Be like, Where's the address? What What's going on there? And like, I know they talk about that in trainings, but that's a real thing that happens. You know, they're, you know, <laughs> yeah. you, they're they're just you trying be cryptic, to cryptic, bro. Yeah, you gotta be <laughs> cryptic, man. It's uh it's a uh, you know, all a fun part of it. Not not that you're trying to not disclose anything necessarily, but really at that point, you due diligence, the nature of it is you don't know if you're gonna buy that property. And so you don't right. wanna trigger something yet with the tax assessor's office. So oftentimes, I mean the simple answer is old fashioned way, picking up the phone, calling multiple people until you actually get answers. Um, sometimes they do have solid information on their website. Some counties I've seen a lot of them. It's kind of just, meh, you got to figure it out, you know? Right, right, right. What about insurance? How are you, I mean, insurance is crazy right now, right? Yeah. How are you guys looking at that or approaching that in the due diligence period? Oh man, I tell you what, insurance is, it's a fun beast in and of itself. So typically we would work with one insurance broker who, you know, we, we know, we trust, and we make sure that, you know, they have our best interests in mind on a property um, and that they truly understand, you know, what our priorities are. Because if they don't ask you any questions, you know, that's a red flag, because if they just come back, they say, oh, yeah, this is 700 a door versus someone else gave you 900 a door. So often as investors, we just care about what's the final number they're going to give me. So really, mm-hmm. in a healthy process, I would say with an insurance broker, they should be asking questions about, hey, what do you want? Are you guys okay with the idea of self-insuring up to a certain amount? Are you guys wanting to get, you know, a strong wind and hail deductible? Obviously, that's a big deal in, you know, Texas and a lot of southeastern markets. Um, Or, you know, along the coast, hurricanes, all that fun stuff, right? Um, Places like Utah, where I live, you got earthquake insurance. Is that something you care about? Do you not? All, All that sort of stuff. So that conversation should happen initially. Then usually they'll have something called the statement of values where you're entering in all the information that you have about the property and going to find out any others. So that's going to be like the total square footage, 
what's the property made out of um most of the types of properties value adds we do are you know stick frame which is the least fire resistant um where are the firewalls at you know can you get a site map for them all sorts of things like that the more information you can give them the more accurate it'll be because there have been multiple times where people will just give vague information the insurance broker doesn't ask many questions and then they give them a quote they're like great this is awesome if they can get the lender to sign off on it which can sometimes be a headache in and of itself then when you close they go do an inspection and if you didn't disclose everything that's when you're really going to get hit hard post close so it's in your best interest to go through the work up front working heavily with a insurance broker making sure that they're asking the right questions you're providing them the right information so you can get an accurate quote by the time you close so that there's not going to be these big surprises post close when the insurance right. company goes out to inspect. Yeah, I didn't realize that they they went to inspect after you close. So I can see how that could probably be problematic if yeah. <laughs> you underwrote to 900, which honestly I haven't underwritten to $900 for insurance in a while. Oh man, I <laughs> I remember when that used to feel like high, we were like, "Whoa, yeah, we're being really conservative here with 900 a door." Yeah. Now it's like, "Man, I wish we could go back to those days." Nine hundred. Uh, it's funny. My home insurance is even going through the roof. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. It's like, what is going on, man? Yeah. Um, insane. Okay, so we've done all the financial due diligence for this property. We have the insurance, the taxes in order, and now we're actually stepping foot into the property. You called out earlier um, electrical, roofs, HVAC, and uh, did you say plumbing? I said plumbing. Yes, sir. Okay. So high level. Let's talk through those. Right. So. Um, for, you know, GPs or, or passive investors, what should they know about HVACs? Yeah, HVAC really, I would say out of these is probably, knock on wood, been the least problematic of them. But you want to see, typically, I always go in with the assumption that previous owners did the bare minimum. <laughs> like, quite honestly, that's right. the way I look at it, right? In HVAC systems, if you want to see, okay, is it centralized? Um, or is it, you know, where they have a bunch of individual units? Oftentimes, that's where you commonly see, you know, a bunch of AC units outside. And that's an easy indicator when you can see, okay, some owners go through and replace all the units, which is amazing. The more common thing you'll see, and the AC units are an easy telltale sign of this, is you just look at the outside of the property, you see all sorts of different types of um, AC condensers outside. You can see ones that look yeah. like they were ancient. Then you see some that are brand new and that tells you, okay, they're just doing them as they go out. So a typical rule of thumb, if everything is looking normal like that, will account for replacing about 20% of them um, to is that make sure. throughout the hold or is that per year? Uh, throughout the hold, right? So that would be, okay. I guess, on your typical three to five year hold, right? If you're holding it longer, obviously you need to plan for, for that accordingly. But that's that's just a baseline, right? When you go to the property, you'll actually see and you say, hey, actually, they've replaced, you know, 70% of these within the last five years. We're golden. We don't need to worry about it. Um, or yeah. you go in and you say, hey, really, they're in rough shape. It looks like they've been tuning up the same ones a million times. Let's make sure that we um, are, are really staying on top of this. Because one of those units, uh, once again, I like I say, it's it's not like this is the hugest one ever. But if you don't catch it early, it can be a big deal because, you know, if you're talking 3K a pop, you know, give or take on these units to replace them, you know, you do a couple of them, you can eat that cost. But if you didn't really make sure and do your inspections and all of a sudden you have, you know, a year or two into holding the property, a bunch of them going out, that's when you're going to be yeah. in trouble. So really just making sure this one, it's it's pretty low key. Make sure that you're... um you understand what you're going into. Usually it's going to be a mix of, of new and used, new and older ones, I'll say, and mm -hmm. plan for replacing them as needed. So we got a hundred units. We're going to, we're just going to, in our underwriting account for replacing uh 20%. So 20 HVAC units at 3K a pop per. So we're going to just add 60,000 into, um, yeah. What is it called? Into your CapEx budget. CapEx. Why can't I think of that? Yeah. Thank you're you. good. You're good. <laughs> no, you're good, bro. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so once again, that's just kind of a baseline. Like for me, if I'm working with an acquisitions manager, which I have started to do more in recent years, 
and you're just throwing out numbers, you you haven't seen the property in real time, I'll do something like that. This isn't something all operators do. You know, you could use that, encompass that in part of like your contingency capital. But then, yeah, right. once you're on site at the property, you've inspected every single unit, then you'll be able to have, you'll be able to say, hey, actually out of 100 units, um, 94 of them are new. You know, that'd be amazing news, right? So you're like, sweet. We, we don't need We're to plan good. for that. Or, or maybe, you know, you see otherwise. So that that's one of the beauties of the actual physical due diligence is you're able to itemize every single unit and see a count there. What's the typical life, like on average of a, of a unit? Of like an HVAC unit? Yeah. That's a good question, man. Um, I really don't know, honestly. <laughs> I mean, no, I've seen worst. some that are still going after 50 years, honestly, like these original ones from the seventies. Um, I'd imagine a lot of them are going to go out here soon, but really I'd, I'd say probably 20, 30 year old ones. Um, we see a good bit of, so I don't know. That's something oh, so I should they, probably they just... Google more. I, I really didn't pay too much attention. I just looked at like, Hey, you know, talk to our contractor and say, you know, that that's the beauty of this, right? We utilize a team. Um, and I would come in and I'd say, Hey, it looks like we probably need to replace about 30. And he'd say, no, like based on the actual inspection, there's this life in them. And I guess I've just trusted them and it's worked out so far. Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> That's good, man. I, and it's true. I I've told a few properties where I'm like, wow, these things are antiques. Like, how are they still going? Yeah. So like I said, yeah, it varies. All right. So roofs roofs so you, you pull up to the property are you actually getting on the roof or are you just eyeing it it depends at the very least so if you're like touring it beforehand you may not be able to get access most likely um and so yeah really if you can get on there great if not you know a lot of um roofers and people like that start to use drones now is a, is a <clears> common <throat> thing that we see and, and usually as long as you can get you know, a pretty clear picture of each of the roofs you can know enough from that. So I'd say either get on the roof or have a drone typically. Okay. And I know a lot of operators, like they just won't do flat roofs. Is, are, do you follow that as well? Good question. I mean, there, there's more, I guess we'll say hiccups involved with it, but I have helped out with, with a flat roof deal and, and that one actually worked out pretty well. So I'd say in general, yeah, it's nice to stay away from flat roofs, but if if the deal is good enough, you know, you can make it work. Right. Okay. So when you're looking at the roof, what exactly are you looking at? Yeah. One of the biggest things is you're, you're looking at what's the age of it, right? That's insurance, lender. That's going to be the biggest thing they ask is, well, how old is the roof? And, you know, that question can be subjective depending on who's answering it, right? If, if your broker, your seller, typically they're going to be saying, oh, well, it's, you know, this old. And, you know, are they talking about repairs that were done or a full replacement of the roof? And so you want to be able to understand looking at it, you know, has there been any damage? Has there been, um, has it been re-shingled? You know, usually they can do a second, a second one, but you don't want to go too many layers of shingles, right? Anyone familiar with roofing is, is aware of that when you're talking shingles specifically, um, when you're talking like right. flat roofs, you know, they'll kind of reseal patch some stuff as, as needed. But, um, yeah, you want to understand, okay, how much life is left on this roof? Cause really they can say, Oh yeah, it's five years. Oh, it's three years. But if they've just been doing a bunch of patchwork for the last few years, you may be stuck once again, two, three years into the deal where something large happens, you know, uh, you know, big storm, something like that. Maybe your insurance isn't going to cover a lot of it uh, for some crazy reason. If you didn't do your insurance homework, um, and <laughs> and then you you're stuck replacing a full roof, which is extremely costly. So really, the age of the roof, but understanding that question's nuanced. So um, in terms of like age, right? Let's let's play green light, yellow light, red light in terms of years. So what is a green light in terms of years for a roof? Yeah, I'd say if we're talking typical three to five year hold, right? Uh, green light would be, you know, around five years for that, um, for the age of that one. And that's five years well taken care of, right? Not just five years okay. piecemeal, five years and newer. Then yellow light, five to 10, right? You're most likely going to need to plan for some repairs, things like that. 
maybe even a replacement during your hold time. Ten plus years, some lenders won't even won't even mess with it. You may need to either get the seller to replace it or give you credits at closing to be able to replace it yourself. Yeah, I, I remember when I would uh, reach out to brokers asking about roofs. A lot of times they didn't know when it was last replaced. So yeah. I would go to like Google Earth and yep. look at the satellite images and just scroll through the years and be like, okay, that's when it was replaced. <laughs> yeah, that's, you good. Know? that's one of my favorite little things. You do Google Earth for the, um, whatever that is, bird's eye view. And then you do Google Maps right. for the uh, street view. I don't know why both of them don't go back in time for street view and bird's eye. But as long as you can use both the applications, yeah, you can you can kind of get a general idea from that. Oh yeah. So when you're when all right, let's say you got that ten years old roof, right, and you you just need to replace it. Yeah. Is there like a calculation or an easy way to estimate how much a roof replacement is going to cost? That's a good question. Actually, I had someone reaching out to me about this earlier today. Quite honestly, like my big thing is, I know enough to get by with some of this stuff. But right. I'm going to rely on the professionals, like especially if we're talking a full new roof replacement. I don't know, depending on the market, what the replacement costs are going to be like, what labor is at the time, materials, all that fun stuff that goes into it. So I don't mess with rules of thumb criteria or rules of thumb like formulas there. I'll look at right. hey, what were historicals for ones that we did before, but I'm going to get a professional you know, to come look at it because I don't, I don't want to mess around because me... I could be 20, 30 grand off, maybe even more, right? Whereas they're going to get us a lot closer. Um, well, in terms of like a starting point, right? You got to have yeah. some number in your underwriting, right? So like before you've reached out to that, are we, are we talking like, you know, 10,000 per building, 100,000 per building? Uh, I have no idea. I've never talked to You're trying to, to get roofer. me to say a number. Don't hold me to this, anybody. But, um, but no, right? Like, so, so one thing, I guess, just based on past deals, right? Is on a... Uh, on a property or excuse me, on a building that had, you know, like eight units, we're talking probably um, like six to 8,000 square feet across for the, for the roof in a sense. Okay. Um, we got quoted, you know, between like 50 to 80 grand um, for replacing some of those roofs. And so once again, I don't know if that's normal. For all ones, that was yeah. just a, a recent one, um, hopefully to give you an arbitrary size. Um, but yeah, I only wanted a number a, really a just to, cost. yeah, just to drive home the fact that replacing roofs is very, very, very expensive, right? Yeah. Um, so if you're underwriting a deal or if you're investing into a deal, knowing where the roof's at, I mean, honestly, that cost could have some serious ramifications on the returns of a deal. 100%. So I really wanted to drive that home, you know? Yeah. Okay. So that's roofing. Let's talk electric real quick. So you can't really see the electricity, right? You can turn on and turn off the lights. So what are you looking for there? How are you due diligencing <laughs> the, <laughs> the electric? Yeah. Really one of the, the biggest thing that hopefully it's, becomes less and less of a big deal over the coming years. But as aluminum wiring, um, once again, insurance and lending is really going to slap your wrist for that. Um, a lot of companies aren't even insuring things that have aluminum wiring anymore unless they're remediated, You know, meaning that someone's gone in and at all the connection points, all the outlets, all the lights, things like that, switches, mm -hmm. they've switched it to a, a copper conversion. And that's because they're a fire hazard. Um, you know, usually 60s and older, some properties in the 70s, you may find it, um, but 60s and older, they use a lot of aluminum wiring. And so really, anytime I see aluminum wiring, I know that needs to be replaced. Now, the way to know that is quite simply, you know, when you're at the property, you can go take a little screwdriver, you know, take off, um, you know, like an outlet or a switch. And you're usually you can see in there, okay, is the wiring copper? Is it aluminum? Do we see whether it's been pigtailed or, you know, remediated and know if that's something we're going to have to replace or not? So is it as simple as cutting off a piece of the aluminum, place, replacing it with copper, and then hooking that copper into the switch or the outlet or the light? Yeah, it's, it's something like that. It's because you can rewire them. I actually, there's a 
the 20s deal that I was looking at that was completely rewired, usually that's not cost effective. Unless you're completely gutting it and you're taking out the walls anyways, then it's like, okay. Yeah, down um, to the studs where yeah, it's it could, easy. It could be worth it at that point. But yeah, rewiring usually isn't worth it. Um, but you're exactly right. that Usually they're going to go in. I don't, I'll be honest, I don't know exactly what they do because um, they, they've done it at one of the properties I didn't, I didn't watch what they did, but yeah, they go in and they do some sort of conversion where they're, they're cutting off the ends. They're putting copper on there to make it so that it's no longer a fire hazard. And then that's going to convert mm. into, you know, all the light switches, all the plugs, things like that. So I don't know exactly what it looks like, but yeah, in a sense they are going in and, and putting a, like a conversion of copper on the end of them. And, and, I mean, I know this, I'm going to ask you for a number, but how about a range, right? Depending on market, what are we looking at? Like if you have a hundred units, are we looking at a thousand dollars per unit to do this remediation or? Hey, that's, that's actually a a good one. So I've only had to deal with this once, um, full disclosure. And yeah, it was actually close to a thousand a unit. Uh, We got quoted 6,000 a unit to rewire them. And we're like, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's going to work. But yeah, it was, it was, I think, 1000 or $1,200 um, to do that. Now, that was you know about two years ago, so who knows, cost could have changed much since then. Yeah. Thankfully, I haven't had to deal with it since then. Nice, man. Yeah, I think when I was underwriting and had that come up a few times, I was 1200 a unit about. Yeah. Um, so what about circuit breakers, right? I remember somebody posted about some issue with a circuit breaker in a property they had picked up, but I can't remember what it was. So what what are you guys looking at there? What's good to see and what's not so good to see? You got the good questions today, Trey. You're you're not letting me leave anything out here. I love it. <laughs> I um <laughs> Well, yeah. I'm taking I'm taking it all in, man. Like this is I'm learning so much from you, Brady. <laughs> like um, seriously. Appreciate it, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. Um, getting into all this stuff. So uh, one of the biggest things is stab lock panels. Um, so you hear once again, that's insurance lending really that at the end of the day, if they're not going to insure it and they're not going to lend on it, you need to replace it. So mm-hmm. that is something that we, um, we had to go into a, a property that I was um, at the time when I was an employee helping out with um, go in post-close, replace all of those. So these are all going to be things that you identify while you're under contract. Ideally, if you can find out beforehand, that's going to be the best case scenario, then just figure out, nail down the costs and stuff while you're under contract. Um, but yeah, stab lock panels. I know you're going to ask. I don't know all the reasons why, but it's... Um... I wasn't going to ask. <laughs> but <laughs> all right, so stab lock bad, what's good? Yeah, so really anything that's um, going to be your typical new panels. I can't even think of the brands right now. It's been... Okay. Been a few oh, months good. since I've uh, since I've uh, seen bad ones, but yeah. So what I would do, honestly, starting out, is I would go when we're touring the property, even you know, typically before getting it under contract, go take pictures of a few of them to make sure what they look like. And mm-hmm. in a very simple sense, if it looks older, maybe sort of in that range. If it looks newer, you're probably safe, right? Because it's it's once again a problem that was um, with older properties. I would usually double check because there was like certain brands, certain models um, that I never memorized. And I would take a picture, send it to our insurance broker, um, double check, hey, good, bad, are we okay here? As long as we got the green light, we were good to go. If we didn't, that's when we'd bring in contractor, you know, to double check, make sure what would the cost look like for that. Nice, man. Nice. Cool. Uh, and the last, the last aspect, what was it? Um... Plumbing. plumbing plumbing yep so how are you approaching plumbing plumbing when you're doing your due diligence yeah no, this is this is a good one and one i guess i will say that is almost in conjunction with plumbing that i should have mentioned is foundation thankfully mm-hmm. i haven't had to deal with foundation issues in forever it's less common um but plumbing kind of goes along with it because if there's plumbing issues there may also be foundation issues but um right. plumbing once again it's just some of these older construction um, things that were used. So your your galvanized steel piping, that's, uh, you know, the biggest thing to watch out for because a lot of them, they'll burst. They're, you know, getting old. Once again, used 60s and older, sometimes 70s. Um, same sort of story right. as the electrical. And so anytime we're, we're running into a property with that, 
um, we want to double check, you know, hey, has there been leaks there? That's going to be something when we're doing our financial due diligence, we can look for indicators, you know, look at their water bill. There was one where we saw, you know, a few spikes throughout the months. We're like, hey, that's not normal. And we're able to see, you know, look at the repairs and maintenance. We saw that there was some, um, you know, some spikes in those same months as well. And we're able to say, okay, so there were some water leaks. Um, usually if there's one, there's going to be more. And so if you go in and it's been repiped, then you're in good shape, right? Um, if it's not, that's when you want to, you know, get that taken care of. And so usually um, you're going to have a plumber come out during due diligence. They're going to scope the pipes, meaning they put a camera down there. They're going to run it through, you know, the main line. They're going to run it through um, some of the other, um, you know, kind of plumbing lines, usually get uh, pictures mm-hmm. from a few there. And they're going to look for, you know, are there, you know, have there been leaks, even if it's a slow leak, um, you know, there's galvanized steel pipes, but even newer pipes, you can still find, hey, are there a ton of blocks there? Do the pipes need to be flushed out? Um, that's something even new construction can have issues with is, you know, having a bunch of obstructions that are going to cause problems later on. Um, so a good plumber will be able to help you um, identify that. And since I know um, we like to talk uh, specifics here a little bit. You know, one example was we looked at a property that they had classic um, kind of indicators beforehand of galvanized mm-hmm. steel piping. And we were looking at about 300K in repairs to um, repair, you know, some of what was going on there. So once again, big ticket item that can really hurt you if you don't identify mm-hmm. it early enough. I've seen some properties where that main line had some severe issues and they had to dig up like almost the whole parking lot. And then the front road, right? Because you have to connect it to the city sewer. Oh man, it's just a nightmare. Yeah. Um, Those are are no fun at all. What is the best case scenario for materials uh, with the piping? Is that like a PVC or? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, Oh man been a few months once again no worries. Um, no. <laughs> i mean yeah pvc is on obviously the the most common one that we see in today but i'm trying to think i feel like there's some fancy flex pipe stuff they use i don't know i'm gonna have to ask my dude keith after this um he was usually yeah. my, my plumber guy i'd go to with my questions so uh, i'll tell him not to watch <laughs> this episode and then i'll call him up and um yeah <laughs> and double well, check if, on if that. you hear back from keith before we post this <laughs> i will drop the answer in the description yeah, just so yeah. everybody knows what this fancy flex plumbing material is so they can look out for it yeah um man <laughs> that's super helpful man like honestly your knowledge of all of that is so 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 impressive i whoo man thank you for sharing all of that i appreciate um, it so when you do when you do run into issues with any of that, right? Like when do retrades and when does seller credits, when do those come into play? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Obviously for anyone who's in the multifamily space, they know that you don't want to do retrades if possible. The last few years have been a little bit wild, right? Um, so sometimes you, you have had to do that, you know? And so what, what we do is it all comes back to what was in your contract. Typically, your common, you know, terms are going to be 30 days for due diligence. So that's why as soon as we get under contract, we want to get out to the property. So within that first week, we can, you know, conduct the due diligence. We can give contractors time to get us quotes back, you know. Um, so within like two weeks there, you know, pushing it into three weeks, if we really needed, we could have a finalized number and say, hey, either we're good with our CapEx or, hey, we're not. We need to submit you know, to the seller, let them know what's going on here. There's some major issues we found that we need to figure something out here. Um, right. You know, always you're, you're never going to lead with attorneys on that. Um, uh, maybe I shouldn't say never, but typically you're not going to lead with attorneys on that. Right. It's um, you're going to go in there more soft and you're, you're going to say, Hey, really, you know, these issues weren't disclosed previously. They weren't found on our previous property tour, whatever that looks like. Um, you try and get it in, you know, before that due diligence deadline, because that's, you know, once that deadline's passed, that's when it's saying, Hey, you're good with it as is. Right. And so during that time period, usually I'd say between days 14 to 30, we'll under contract, you're going to need to figure out, 
Are there going to need to be credits? Are there going to need to be retrades? And what would that look like? Okay. Um, so what are some examples of when you would retrade and what are some, what are some examples of when you would ask for a seller credit? Yeah, that's a good point. Um, <clears throat> so really, I mean, in a general sense, right, retrading can encompass a, a couple different things, but you want to understand what's the seller looking for. And, you know, seller credits can sometimes be more favorable for them because, you know, they're, they may be, you know, they maybe want to show that they hit a certain price or whatever. So really, I'd say the biggest thing is first understanding what does the seller care about? What do they want? Because at the end of the day for us, whether we get a price reduction or seller credits, which are the two most common ones. Um, and of course that price reduction, right? We're talking retrade there. Um, understand what's, what's that look like for the seller? You know, is there any impact on us? Usually it's like, Hey, we can make it work either way. Um, and we'll, we'll roll with if they're more, you know, kind of adherent or open to one option than the other, then we'll roll with that. Now, just, just so I, I understand, is there a difference between a price reduction and a retrade? Yeah. I mean, it, it could go into, I mean, I'll say honestly, from the scope that I saw, sorry, we didn't notice a difference, right? For But I was only seeing part of the picture on these. Mm-hmm. So for the seller, you know, I'm sure it could affect taxes. Once again, what they tell investors, what, you know, it looks like on paper. Um, obviously, that's going to be affected. But yeah, I, w- I would think other than that, really, it's going to be, you know, the way that they're taxed or the way that... Um, that shows up in the end for them. For for my part, you know, I was only seeing one piece of the puzzle. I didn't see a difference personally um, on any of the yeah. bills that, that we did have to do this on. Makes you wonder, like, how many operators are artificially inflating their returns because they're offering so many seller credits? Yeah, I mean, it, hmm. at the end of the day, right, your returns are going to be, you know, whatever's left going to go to the investors. Um, it's just, mm-hmm. you know, is the seller going to eat some of those costs and, you know, not really tell their investors right. or whatever that, whatever that looks like. Right. But yeah, there, there could be, um, you know, some inflated things on paper for sure. And when you're doing these property, uh, when you're at the property, right, how are the residents, are they involved at all or they're just notified and have to let you in? Yeah, no, it's a good question. So they're, um, they're notified, you know, typically they're, you know, you, you have a lot of people there at the property a day and residents are kind of like, Oh, what's going on. Right. And you're saying, Hey, you know, we want to make sure how things are looking for, um, you know, health and safety things, you know, come to improve these. So when possible, I, I mean, I just talk to people in general, but if I'm, for example, inspecting with somebody else, um, and I'm going to try to talk to the to the tenants and gather all the information I can, right? Because I'm coming in, I'm saying, hey, we're here doing health, life, safety, you know, inspections. We're we're just you know making sure insurance is good, whatever you tell them, right? Because um, once again, you, nothing's ever finalized until closing day, so we we don't sit there and say, hey, we're the new owners, right? <laughs> um, right. So, in answer to your question, they're not really involved in an official sense, but obviously you're getting into their units. You're, you're going to be talking to them. I like to talk to all of them that I can. And that's where I find out a lot of good, valuable information. You know, some, some Mm -hmm. of them, uh, for example, one elderly woman, she was super sweet. Um, she was actually in uh, Fort Worth. So, um, Oh, nice. You're, you're Dallas area, right? I don't. Yeah, I'm in Dallas. Okay. I'm not crazy. Cool. Um, yes, the, (laughs) the sweet old lady in Fort Worth, you know, we're, we're doing the inspections around there and, you know, it's common that they'll ask, Oh, what are you guys doing and stuff? So I told her, you know, I was like, Hey, you know, how's your experience been at the property? You know, what's, what do you like here? What do you not like here? You know, um, just kind of general things there. And she started telling me, you know, about, you know, a drug problem that was going on there that, um, mm. you know, we weren't aware that people would come over a certain part of the property where like, uh, cameras didn't previously like, see and so they would hop the fence and then they would come do drug deals you know every night and stuff like that um nearby to her unit and we're like oh that's that's awesome to know and so from that we were able to you know increase security measures 
cameras, lighting, all that fun stuff. And so it was kind of cool just to see like, okay, that's how, you know, a simple conversation there. We can find out a lot of information that we can spend hours looking through documents and looking right. through, you know, researching on the website. And in a five minute conversation, you can find out a ton of information um, from residents. Always take it with a grain of salt, right? But um, there is a ton to be gleaned from there. So once again, I know from no. <laughs> from circling back to your original question, uh, nothing specific needed from the tenants. But man, if you're not talking to them, you're you're definitely missing out. Yeah, I feel like those drug deals might have come from your small town, right? They <laughs> they made it all they the they wrong made path. it all the way out there. Well, there's a there's a yeah. u- unique breed called Stoner Hicks, right? So you have like Stoner Hicks. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It wasn't that bad, let's uh, be real, but um <laughs> anyways. Dude, you've like this is super valuable. And I I wanna like if you were to package all of this up, right, and then just hand it to a new or experienced investor, right? What would that package look like? Like what do they need to know to confidently invest? in a multifamily deal? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I mean, honestly, this may seem counterintuitive, but one of the biggest things that I say is there's no way you're going to be able to remember all this stuff. There's no way you're going to be able to know and see everything that you need to as a passive investor, as an active investor, even, you know, let's say you're doing investor relations, things like that. You're not going to see all this stuff. So what you need to do is you need to really make sure that you trust the people that you're working with who, you know, right. namely your property management, your acquisitions manager, asset manager, if you have a due diligence specialist like I was, make sure that you understand, you know, who they are, what their experience level is in this, how confident you can, how confidently you can trust them in this. And that's going to be the biggest piece because then from that, you can start to glean a bunch of things. You know, once you, once you get in one, two, three deals deep, you know, unless you already have experience in construction and, um, you know, maybe acquisitions, you know, in real estate or different things like that, you're probably not going to get heavily, heavily involved in this, you know, nitty gritty stuff I'm talking about. Um, so that's where I say, trust your teammates that you're working in. And then once you start to get more comfortable with it, that's where I would say, okay, you know, really that's where you can start looking at the hundred point checklist, all that stuff, really diving in there deeper, Obviously, you can get into some of that in your first deals, but don't worry about it. You got enough of other things to worry about. Make sure that you trust the people who are overseeing this part of the process. Hell yeah, bro. I think a lot of people are going to trust you like even more after this conversation. So I know I do. Sheesh. (laughs) Sheesh. Um, All right. So with Black Cedar Investments, right, you were worth uh, MFCP and now you've kind of stepped out and you're working with some new partners and you've kind of switched the hat that you're wearing to more um, frontline, you know, working with the investors, the investor relations team. How has the transition been from due diligence to this new role? Yeah, it's a good question. So um, this plays into why I say, oh, it's been a few months since I've done that, right? Because um, on some of these due diligence items, because it feels like even just after a few months, I'm like, oh, I'm out of the game there, man. But yeah, I have transitioned more into the investor relations portion. Obviously, for anyone familiar with it, it's more of like a sales and marketing type role. Whereas, you know, your due diligence is more of like your, you know, really working with property management, you know, a little bit more quantitative, things like that. Um, so transitioning, uh, honestly, is a lot of fun. Like I love the new challenge. I love seeing, Hey, I've, I've been around this business for so long and there's this whole world that I'm not familiar with. And really for our business, it was, Hey, what's going to help propel us for me. I like talking to people, you know, (laughs) I know I've said that a few times and I really enjoy that. So I was like, Hey, might as well try this out. Right. Like let's, let's see what we can do. And, you know, I, after I started, you know, practicing, having investor conversations, starting putting myself out there more, I found I loved it. And I was like, man, I want to jump yeah. full force into this. So after the course of, you know, a month or two, I was like, hey, you know, my business partners, they're experienced in the due diligence acquisition side of things as well. I'm like, hey, I'm going to jump full force, feet first into this because this is where we can build more traction for our business. It's something that I actually surprisingly really enjoy. So um, the transition has been has been enjoyable, man. It's been a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. I'm going to put you on the spot. Yes, sir. Are you ready? Hit me with it. All right. 
we 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 just walked into a very fancy building in Dallas that's thirty stories high. We hit the same floor of the elevator. We're going to the twentieth floor. We both walk in. It's just me and you, and you know that I'm a high net worth individual. How are you in the, or introducing yourself? Well, first of all, I'm gonna talk about you as much as I can, right? If we have thirty seconds on there, I'm trying to spend twenty of that talking about you. So I'm gonna get to know you, understand who you are, and you know maybe I'll hold on. I want break it. We're role playing. Okay, okay. okay? So we're, we're doing. Okay, it. the door is cl- the door is closed. I look at you. I nod my head, and you say, "My man, that is one of the nicest beards I've seen recently." <laughs> How are you doing today? I'm good, bro. How are you I'm doing? I'm doing great, man. So, so what are you up to here today? I mean, it's not every day that we go into these big towers, right? I mean, maybe every day for you, but what's up? Yeah, man. Headed upstairs to my fancy dress party. Oh, it's a ball. Awesome, man. Awesome. <laughs> Love to hear that. Love to hear that. So what is it you do on a day-to-day basis, you know, when you're not at dress parties? Oh, I run a hedge fund worth multiple millions of dollars. Man, that is awesome. I love that. I'm I'm actually in the space, you know, with investors as well. You know, I run a boutique firm where we focus on multifamily syndications. I assume, are you familiar with the syndication world? Yeah, I got a few buddies who are doing it. Awesome, man. Awesome. So what we do is we help high net worth individuals like yourself be able to invest into properties directly. That's where we differ from a fund is, you know, you're able to choose an investment opportunity, you know, be able to get involved there, but still have passive ownership in it. But you can also get a lot of the, the tax benefits, you know, along with cash flow and equity. So, man, I would love to connect sometime. I think you got a lot of great things going on. You know, for me, myself, I'd love to get some, fee- some of your feedback on a project we're working on right now, actually. Uh, would would you be okay to connect sometime? Could I get your info? It's not bad, bro. That's, I like how you ask for the feedback at the end too. I like that a lot. You got to slide that in there, right? If you don't yeah, have a project, makes you, you feel better important. find one real quick. Then at that point, right, <laughs> right, or just make one up real quick. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just run the Canva hey, and put like, together oh, yeah, got, a I whole pitch deck. Minutes, man, tell me about it. Like, oh yeah, like <laughs> let me tell you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right. It's it's the best deal ever you ever saw. Real estate buildings. It's actually this building. It's for sale. Uh, Yeah. Um, No. So disclaimer: you can probably see. I I got to utilize my personality in it, man. I don't know how else to do it. I enjoy it. I just have fun with it. I don't know. That was good, man. I'm like I would have given you all my money. So. Thank you. Thank you. uh, Obviously, I'm not very good at the other side of the role playing. Like a million dollar hedge fund. What? Yeah. <laughs> so, oh boy. So, how has your due diligence knowledge helped you play this investor relations sales marketing role better? One word mansplaining. Just kidding. You can cut that out if you want. <laughs> Leave it in. Well, no, in all, in all seriousness, right? Is, you know, I think sometimes there's obviously this perception that people are like, hey, if you're in this like sales role or if you're, you know, in it, you don't really know what's going on in the business, right? You're so disconnected from it. Um, and really for me, it's it's been a lot of fun because like, no, I have done property management. I have, you know, done a lot of this due diligence type stuff. And so, yeah, if you want to know what the heck's going on with these galvanized steel pipes we're talking about, I'll tell you, man, like it's a lot of fun. So um, I think just being able to build credibility, be real with people there. Um, that's something I've really enjoyed showing, Hey, you know, um, I've enjoyed, you know, spending the last few years being on the operations side of this. And I, and now I want to be able to share a bunch of that with you, obviously doing it bite-sized pieces. I'm not going to dump all this stuff on them, but when they're wanting to understand more about it, I can definitely, you know, feel comfortable letting them know, you know, what's happening operationally at a property. Yeah, that's definitely powerful. I mean, your knowledge of the details inside of a multifamily property. I mean, that's just, I feel like that's huge. I feel like that's so huge. So, um, and has that knowledge helped shape black cedar investments, uh, buy box, the the criteria for assets that you're looking Mm, for? Yeah, that's a good question. I'm, I have found myself being highly picky sometimes. So I'd, I'd say this is where it's important to check and balance. Um, 
because I have a partner who's a little bit more opportunistic, right? Where he's able to say like, Hey, this could be something good. And I'm just like coming out, I'm like looking at all the negatives of it right away. So we're able to check and balance each other there. I'd say in terms of the criteria, um, I mean, really we've, you know, we've kind of stuck to the same criteria all along. It's just that, that check and balance piece, I think is, is the biggest part where, you know, myself and my two business partners, but especially one of them, we're able to kind of push and pull when we um, come come face to face with a, a property. Yeah, I want you, shout out to your business partners. Yeah, wants you to give them a quick introduction. Yeah, yeah, they're both a lot smarter than me, more handsome, and <laughs> just great dudes. <laughs> so we got Hunter Gasquet. He's from Tennessee, and you know, amazing dude. He's uh, worked in development. He's uh, done, you know, some of his own real estate previous to this and, you know, really well-rounded individual. He's really good with the people side of things and really good with the number side of things. It's hard to find that sometimes, you know, Um, except for you, Trey, of course, you're good with that. So doing it all, baby. My man. (laughs) So, um, yeah, Hunter's amazing. Then Zach, he's the mastermind, man. Um, He's created multiple different... um, proprietary underwriting templates he you know worked for multiple large multifamily groups prior to this so he saw you know mm-hmm. groups that own 20 30,000 plus units um don't quote me on that i don't remember the exact number but um i was able to learn from them really good on the quantitative financial side of things so great dudes um been been very blessed to, to work with them learn from them Oh yeah, man! Shout out to Hunter and Zach, yeah. man. They're two great dudes. You guys are a powerhouse team. I'm not gonna lie to you. I appreciate that. Like, wow, you guys are gonna do big things. So you you've been putting a lot of work into your LinkedIn account, right? Is that your social media of choice right now? Yeah, it's my it's my preferred social media. So what does it what does it take to succeed on LinkedIn and social media in general? Yeah, when it comes to like the investor relations role. Good question. So. This is coming from the standpoint of someone who does not like social media. I have purposely spent years trying to avoid social media, and now I'm trying to repent and get back into it more. So I'll say for me personally, LinkedIn is definitely the most comfortable one because it's the most professional. You're able to, um, you know, the algorithm tends to favor more, uh, I guess, substantive posts, right? Like, meaning like educational, yeah. you know, more words, content, things like that. Um, as opposed obviously to more video or visual based things like that. So for me, really it's it's look at, hey, what are all the ways I can optimize my profile very first, make sure that anyone who comes here they know exactly what I'm all about. Um and so for me, that looked like, you know, I you know, have all this other past work history, but for me personally I just decide, hey, like let's stick with what's relevant. Let's make sure anything that doesn't need to be there, let's trim the fat. And so, you know, my skills, my um, work history, what I'm talking about, I'm still being me. I'm still being authentic to myself, but I'm focusing, hey, I'm really, I'm here as a real estate investor. Here's the main things that anyone who would want to vet me out would want to know. So first go through, clean up the profile as needed. Um, And then for me, really, it's staying consistent with the posting in conjunction to um, direct outreach campaigns. So Shout out to anyone who may be listening, who's been hit up by my outreach campaigns. Um, hopefully you <laughs> like it. But um, I, I found that one of the things I like about LinkedIn is there's a lot of softwares that can conveniently plug into it to uh, mm. be able to automate outreach. So, you know, I started out with like automating like 10 outreaches a day to people. Then you can ramp it up to LinkedIn allows you to do about 200. Um, and then you can get creative with a few other things. So now I'm kind of maxing that out. And when I do that in conjunction with organic posting, that's where I found um, the most success, I guess, on, on LinkedIn recently. I didn't even know you could do that. LinkedIn is one of those social medias that scare me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, we're opposite. I, do, I currently have, <laughs> yeah, like I have my W2 right now and eventually like one of my avatars for investors is definitely going to be, you know, tech professionals who, you know, usually higher income earners um, that may or may not be aware of the benefits of investing in multifamily. Right. So I have a huge network 
I'm still rough around the edges though. I need to clean that up before I jump back into that. I'm playing in the Instagram playground right now. If you're not following me, you should at Trey Jacobs underscore because Trey Jacobs was taken. Stupid Trey Jacobs. <laughs> um, side note, it's not even taken. The account got banned by another Trey oh, Jacobs man. and they won't let me have the handle. So I had to put the underscore. It makes me so mad, but it's there. Yeah, go go give this man a follow. Um, He's got cash money content. I can attest. <laughs> <laughs> well, in, in about two weeks, when I cut this episode up and post it on social, I'm gonna have some fire ass content, bro. Like, this has been money, bro. I'm not gonna lie to you. Your knowledge of all the aspects of uh, due diligence and just multifamily properties in general is really, really, really impressive. And I know that you know we've talked before about this, right? But sometimes you you kind of worry about your age being yeah. a, a factor in how you're perceived. Well, honestly, I. I didn't even want to bring it up, but age is just a number. Your knowledge like outshines that completely, bro. So that, brother. Um Yeah, man. Thank you for everything that you do for for the community. Um just a good guy, man. You're just a good guy. <laughs> no, I appreciate it, man. All right. Let's let's Oh yeah, bro. Let's talk about goals, right? What are some of your personal goals? What is the next I don't even want to go out six months in a year. What are your goals? Six months in a year, huh? So I would say really some of the biggest things for six months to a year is continuing to lean into the capital raising side of things, become more adept yeah. with different social media platforms and, you know, continue to gather more data there. So I know what's working, what's not working. You know, I, I had a, I had a heyday starting out with just trying out a bunch of different stuff. Right. And it, and it's, a lot of fun. You see what sticks, what doesn't. And now I, I have enough time and efforts doing that to where I can gather data. So really data gathering is going to be a big part of leaning into that more. Um, and then additionally, you know, like I, I started acquiring properties in Utah. That's, you know, my home state, something I plan on continuing to do. Um, so, you know, next six mm -hmm. months to a year, if we could paint a perfect picture, right, that would look like half the deals in Utah, half the deals in emerging markets outside of Utah. Um, to have a good mix, um, both for my own portfolio and for our investors um, who, you know, have their different preferences. Um, you know, right. on the personal side, obviously keep doing, you know, have multiple goals with myself, and my wife for, you know, personal development for our family. Um, probably going to be moving here soon. Um, really? Where yeah, are you guys moving yeah. to? So we talked about moving to Florida for forever. So I'm just going to manifest it here publicly, right? Like that's something um you know are you talking orlando uh orlando area right so about an hour away from from orlando is where we're looking so wow. move uh it's you're like the very opposite of florida <laughs> man like how are you gonna do that dude i <laughs> i i love florida right so it's like or at least central florida i guess i uh, you know i haven't gone out in the boonies too much um you know of, of florida so i don't know i don't know i'm kind of scared too for being honest yeah, be careful. Those were those stoner hicks. Right. Yeah, dude, they'll come out of the woods. Deep out there, they they're a different breed than the ones in Utah here. So, um, but no, dude, like I love like the Caribbean influences along with like the Southern influences. You know, I I think you know I speak Spanish, so um, you know I I love you know just a lot of the the food, the culture, a lot of the people. It's just like you know I've been in Utah for a while now. You know I've lived in Midwest. I've lived in you know the Western U.S. most of my life. Um, and you know, me, my wife and I are ready for some change there. I think it'd be positive for us. Um, also, you know, probably some changes coming down the line that can't really talk about yet, uh, for, uh, for some of the things I'm doing in terms of consulting, you know, helping out, um, other mm -hmm. multifamily investors. So got some exciting things coming down the line there. Um, I know I'm speaking very vaguely right now, but, uh, we have several goals attached with all those things. Yeah, it's very foggy. Those goals are, but I hear you. Hey, all I ask is you get a house that has a guest room so I can oh, come yes, visit. Oh yes, dude. That's my, all. my wife. She's. We don't need this space, but she wants like six bedrooms, and you know she's the boss. So six dude. bedrooms. What? That's a mansion. I I'm a simple Gosh. guy. You know, that's the real reason I had to invest in real estate is to support her lifestyle. You know. Yeah. <laughs> just kidding. Just Sounds kidding. Like love it, my man. love my wife. Um, a lot more reasons than. 
than just that. <laughs> cool, uh, man. Well, I want to open up the floor, man. Anything that you want to add or say before we wrap man. up? Yeah, this has been awesome. I, I appreciate it. I, I would just say one of the biggest things, if I could go back several years ago, I really, really would have focused on personal branding a lot more. Even if I wasn't focused on capital mm-hmm. raising, I would have really made more of an effort there because I kind of just honestly like stayed in the shadows for a few years other than like my you know career and you know the people that I was running in circles with there my family other people outside I didn't really know what I was doing so that would be one thing I would say especially if I was just getting started you know best time to start was several years ago next best time is right now you know just start with something with like personal branding things like that even if you're not in a position for that you know I saw myself as hey I'm a due diligence guy I don't need any of that um, and it would have served me very well to have started that earlier. So that would be the one thing I would say, honestly, with that. Yeah. So I definitely have to have you on another time because I want to go into depth on that LinkedIn stuff. That sounds so yeah. powerful. And next time you come on, you need to have a slogan. Okay. That's your homework. Branding slogans. I feel like it's all tied it's together. Like one of my so, slogans? My man. Your slogan, your personal slogan that encompasses your vibe because that's what a yeah, brand is yeah. right your, your brand is your vibe right like the feels how do you make people feel oh, dude, so I, well I, one of the ones that i really love just real quick before we got to wrap this up is yeah. i yeah. love like the idea that every person has infinite potential that's something i really believe to my core and that's something that you know i'm talking like spiritually physically emotionally, all those things, like we have so much more potential than we give ourselves credit for. And that's why I love like, yeah, apartment investing is amazing. I love it. But also like the aspect of being able to help people and see the people who invest passively and the people who get in investing actively when they can start to like see like, oh my gosh, like I can, they can see their potential increasing because our potential has zero caps to it. Um, or I don't know if that's something that the kids say these days or something. Cap or something. It has zero, <laughs> zero no cap. Is what I'll say, right? Um, <laughs> no, no cap, cap bro. man. There's, there's, it's, it's lit. Yeah, something like that, Ye- whatever the kids say these days. But no, like. Yo, your potential is on fleek. <laughs> whatever that means, right? Um, but I, I don't know. I'll, I'll get it more like formulated next time when we talk. But but yeah, infinite potential, man. Well, it's so in my kitchen for probably the last five years, I've had the quote, I don't, it's not a coach Carter quote, but it's from coach okay. Carter and it's our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. I mean, and I think that's so powerful. So I put it in my kitchen cause your boy likes to eat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I look at it every day, <laughs> you know, I ain't missing oh, no yeah. meals. So just to remind myself, that, man. cool, man. Yeah. Where can the people yeah, find you? You can find me, you know, the biggest way, LinkedIn, like we talked about. So um we'll we'll post my, my link there, my website, blackseedinvestments.com. I'm on Facebook, Instagram, I'm trying out X and threads. So if you really want to connect there, we can as well. Awesome. I'll drop all that in the description. Thank you so much for joining me today. And um yeah, so so much value. But with that. I'm Trey Jacobs. This is the man, Brady Barker. We out of here. Peace.